Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Well, the Apostle Peter said something so hugely significant that um, you can hear it on first, when you first hear it, yeah, okay, but as you think about it more and more, it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And he said in his second letter, he said that God has given us all things that pertain to life and to godliness through knowing him. All things about life. Anything about life that you need to try to figure out today? Right? He's given us all that to, to, to be able to live the life that not only pleases him, but a life that is what we were made to live. And then he said life and godliness. And so that's how do we live in a, as, as Christians? How do we live in ways that really please and honor him? All things that pertain to life and godliness. And so the Apostle Paul, as he writes this letter to the Colossians, um, is trying to uh, communicate, I shouldn't say trying, he does communicate, the Holy Spirit leads him to write the letter to Colossians. And if you remember, if we go ahead and get to the slide, that'd be great, Eduardo. You can remember that he um, is telling them that Jesus is the one, that we find all of this life and all the godly, all that stuff is found in him. And so just to summarize what we've already seen in Colossians, that Jesus is the one who made us holy, right? You guys remember that? He calls us what? Saints. Uh, he made us holy. He strengthens us to live for him. Uh, in other words, he, we're supposed to live like a Christian and in our own, we don't have that ability, that strength, so he strengthens us to live for him. He delivered us from the power of darkness. We'll talk a little more about that today. Uh, he completely reconciled us to God. In other words, if you've received Jesus as Savior, there is nothing between you and God that, as far as having a relationship goes. Now, you may live certain ways and not do what he wants you to do and all that, and you may struggle on your side of this relationship, but God is not put anything in between you. He has reconciled you completely. And then he has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It says he and the Father and the Spirit, everything. Do you need to know anything today that you've you got to learn something in life? And have you ever learned anything? You need to learn things, don't you? All the knowledge that you need, he has. All of the wisdom, the understanding about, you know, my relationships, my work, uh, my health, everything like that. It's all available in Jesus, which is why uh, the Holy Spirit led Paul to write that for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And here's the real thing I want you to catch here, that you are complete in him. You know, and life has a way of making us feel like we have to measure up all the time. Is that true, right? The basic principles, the way the world works. Measure, what have you done for me lately? Right, we have to measure up, measure up, measure up, measure up. But no, in him we don't have to. We are complete in him. And yes, we grow and we learn to live that way more consistently, but we're starting from a place where we are already complete. Which is why then Paul says that in all things, 
he might have the preeminence. That's what makes sense. And so that brings us to the portion of scripture we want to look at today. So let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. Chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse number 11. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, we encourage you to take one out of the chairs there in front of you, underneath there in a rack, and turn to page 1,354. It's where we will be today. So, all these things that we talk about the Lord, you know, and what he's done for us, how do we experience these things? Verse 11. It says, in him, in Jesus... You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So... Let's go back and talk about this a little bit. Verse number 11. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is this circumcision thing? I mean, we, uh, you know, I'm sure we probably all know what circumcision is physically. But he says here that we were circumcised, but the circumcision that's not a physical circumcision. It's a spiritual circumcision. And somehow or other this happened because of the circumcision of Christ. And what's the deal? Well, circumcision was given to Abraham way back, you know, before 2000 BC, given to Abraham as a sign of his covenant relationship with God. It was an outward symbol, though very private, very personal, but an outward symbol of a relationship with God. It was symbolic of something. Well, that became part of the Jewish law, the law of Moses and regulations around that and when it was supposed to happen, how it was supposed to happen, those kinds of things. So it became uh, connected to the Jewish people. Once again, it was still that outward sign, a symbolic sign of their relationship with God. But it came to be used to refer to Jewish people. The Bible will talk about there's Gentiles and those people who are not Jewish people. And then there is the circumcision. And thus, circumcision means the Jewish people. It's the idea, they're the people that keep the law. And so this word circumcision came to reflect not just the act itself, but um, the law, that it represents the law of Moses, the whole thing. All right, now, the Bible tells us that nobody has ever kept the law, except for one person, who? Jesus. None of the rest of us have kept the law. We've all broken the law at some time place. And I don't mean Massachusetts state law, you may have done that, but I mean the law of God. None of us have, have ever measured up to that. I mean, let's think about that. Anybody here has always uh, put God first in your life every moment of every day you've ever lived? Anybody? No? Anybody in here never used the Lord's name improperly? I say, well, I never use it as a cuss word. Yeah, but did you ever say something about God and then you didn't live like it was true? You used his name in vain, right? Anybody in here never told a lie? If anybody says so, I say, that's one, okay? Anybody in here ever taken something that didn't belong to yourself? 
even if maybe it was time at work that you did something on your work time that wasn't work? I mean, see, we've all broken the law. In fact, let's, let's do this. I want to know, how many times would you say is an average number of times that, that we sin in a day? Okay, how many times do we sin in a day? We, and this, this includes, you know, disobeying God. That would be clear. This would be not doing the right thing. This would include, knowingly not doing the right thing. This would include doing the right thing, but knowingly not doing it the right way. I mean, you know, this is our motives too, all that kind of stuff. How many times a day do you think it'd be safe to say that the average person sins? Us, Christians. <laughs> Nobody wants to say. How many, not you, I don't want to know how many times you sin a day. How many times do you think the average Christian sins a day? Somebody. 36. Oh, 36. 16 hours a day, 36, that's, well. Let's go a little more conservative than that. <laughs> let's be real generous. Do you have, when you're on a, we have a really good day. You have a really good day, how many times? Five, somebody says five. Are we okay with that? You guys really? Anybody wanna say no, I want lower? Okay. All right, so that's five times 365 times, if you're 40 years here, and let's give you 10 years, the first 10 years of grace. So 30 years, over a 30 year period. Ah, we're up to 54,750 cents. Okay, so we have not kept the law of God. Uh, Not even close. And so the Apostle Paul tells us here that Jesus did keep the law. That's what he says at the end of that verse, right? Let's look at it. In him, him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So something spiritual has happened, not physical, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, Jesus kept the law. Remember this circumcision refers to the idea of the law. Jesus kept the law perfectly. And because he did that, he could die for my sins. And I'm older than my, we, I got lots of sins to be forgiven, all right? And so uh, him dying in our place for us pays for those sins. Let's continue, verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Buried with him in baptism. This word baptism literally means to put into. When we read this verse here, he's not talking about getting baptized in water. He's talking about what this means. And the idea is this, that when we receive Jesus Savior, that very moment when we said, okay, God, I have sinned against you. I know it. I, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again, and I put my faith in him. I trust him as my Savior. That that very moment, God spiritually takes us and puts us into Jesus. And we are inseparably united with him forever, okay? And what he's saying here is we were buried with him. Notice then that fact that we are united with him, his death becomes our death, spiritually, all right? He died, paid the penalty for our sins, and we reap the benefits of that because we're put into him. And then his resurrection, we are what? Put into him. And so that life that he has, we have because we are in him. 
All right, so this is what's happened. Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. He alone could do that. We reap the benefits of it because God has put us into him. And then verse 13, he says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So he's talking about two things here. Your trespasses, that's the ones we, all, we added up on the calculator a minute ago. And the uncircumcision of your flesh, he says, you weren't part of God's covenant people. So you were totally separated from God, separated because of your sin, separated because you had no relationship with the people of God. He says, he has you, you were dead, but now he has made you alive together with him. Remember, we are united with him. Now we are alive together with him. He says, having forgiven you all trespasses. That is such good news, isn't it? So we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper here as a reminder of that. The Lord Jesus said that we ought to do this in remembrance of what he's done for us until he returns for us. And so we're going to do that here this morning. Uh, before we begin, let me just say to you that what we want to focus in on and think about here is that three, three uh, words with the letter P, start with the letter P. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He's freed us from the, the penalty of sin. All those sins we've committed, all the sins we ever will commit, he died paying the penalty for that. So he's freed us from the penalty of sin. Second thing he's done is he's freed us from the controlling power of sin. In other words, we are now free to say no to what's wrong and yes to what's right, yes to the Lord. We can do that. And then the third one, he's already settled it, but we aren't experiencing yet, and that is he has freed us from the presence of sin. And that happens when we transition out of this life. That's Rory transitioned out of this into freedom from the very presence of sin. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper, let's remember that we're freed from the penalty of sin, we're freed from the controlling power of sin, and we will be freed from the very presence of sin. All right, so the Bible tells us that this, these are symbols we're going to partake of here. The Bible tells us that the symbol really, really matters. It's, it's, it is a symbol. And it matters because of what it symbolizes. In other words, the fact that Jesus died for us, taking all that penalty for our sins, that's a serious thing, isn't it? That's, that's like, how much more important could something get? And so the Bible says we ought not to take it lightly. And so to participate in this, what we want you to do, what Paul says we have to do is we need to examine ourselves and look at our lives and say, hey, am I taking this lightly in my life? Or am I really being serious about this in my relationship with God? And if you discover that, you know, wow, I'm not really taking this very serious. I'm kind of doing my own thing. Or maybe just one area of your life that, that's like that. And what I want you to do, and what God encourages you to do, admit it to God today. To agree with God about it. That's not right. That's not the way he wants you to live. And uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so let's take a minute or so here, quiet before the Lord. We bow our heads quietly before the Lord. Examine ourselves before we partake of this and take care of whatever you need to between you and God. Saw that we are free from the, the penalty of sin free from the controlling power of sin, free, we will be, it's already settled, but we will experience being freed from the very presence of sin. So how, how free are we? 
How, how free are we? What does it really mean to be free in Christ? Okay, we want to take a look at that this morning. And so let's uh, go back to Colossians here. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus removed some insurmountable, insurmountable obstacles for us. Things that we never could have fixed on our own. Things we never could have gone around, we couldn't have climbed over, couldn't have dug up. Insurmountable obstacles that he has cleared up for us. So let's look in verse 14. It's actually the end of verse 13. We already saw it, right? He has made us alive together, having forgiven you all trespasses. And that's not something you can fix for yourself because how good do you have to be to make it to heaven on your own? Now remember, we talked last week, no more trick questions. This isn't a trick question. How good do you have to be to make it to heaven on your own? Perfect. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talking, he says, hey, you need to be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. And we all say, uh-oh, right? Um, and the, we've all heard these words and we've all said them. Well, well nobody's perfect. Exactly, right? In fact, we found out this morning that most of us here are probably at least 55,000 sins past perfect. Okay? So it's an obstacle that we could not have overcome ourselves. But Jesus coming and dying for our sins enabled us to overcome that. And this is such good news because we will not be judged. I say we. When I say we, I mean those of us who have received Jesus as Savior. We put our faith in Jesus with respect to what he did for us on the cross and to provide that forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We who have done that will never have to stand before God and answer for those sins. Because if you had to stand before God and answer those sins, you'd be in trouble, wouldn't you? All right? And so the Bible talks about what's called the great white throne judgment. And that's where people who have not received Jesus will stand before God. The books will be open and they will go through it and they will show repeatedly time after time where they sinned against God. Time after time where they knew they did what was wrong. Time after time where they knew they didn't do what was right. And, and time after time when their motives were not right. All of this and it will be proven beyond any shadow of a doubt that they are deserving of hell. But you and I will not be in that judgment. We will not stand before God in that. Were we deserving of hell? Were we? Absolutely. But Jesus died. He took our place. He paid that penalty for us so we would not have to. Yeah, now, does it matter if we sin then now as Christians? Certainly it does. We have this relationship with God and sin gets, you know, messes us up and we get afraid of God and it's, it's a mess. Sin is never good for us. Uh, but we will stand in what's called the judgment seat of Christ. And this is not where he's going to say that was a sin and that was a sin. It's just where he's going to evaluate how we lived and what was good and right and pleasing to him and, and according to his design, all that, that will endure that judgment and we will be rewarded for that. It's, a, it's a, a judgment to find out what is your rewards. What an amazing thing that, that Jesus has overcome this obstacle for us, right? The penalty for our violations of God's law. That's what Jesus paid for. 
Go ahead and go to that, yeah, if you would there. Thank you. The second thing we see, and this is, well, let me just read it to you. Verse 14. He says, so he's forgiven us all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So I'm going to show you the second thing he's done is that the law itself he has removed. Go ahead and go with your couple slides behind there if you catch up there. All right. The obstacle he's overcome is the law itself. Look at that. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And so the idea is if we would take the law of God with respect to what's right and wrong and, and apply that and, and look at it in our lives, the law of God, you'd say, wow, I broke this one repeatedly. I broke this one a couple times. I broke this one a lot. I mean, I, you know, that's what you would see. And what you would say is, wow, that law is now what? It's against me. It is contrary to me. I've lived contrary to it. It is contrary to me. But when Jesus died on the cross, uh, Romans says it this way. It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Go ahead and put that up there if you would. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. In other words, Jesus fulfilled the law. We saw that earlier when it says through his circumcision of Christ, right? They're talking about the law. He kept the law. He kept the law for all of us. He kept it perfectly. And so now it is no longer anything about how we get righteousness. It's through Christ that we get our righteousness. And so it's like, okay, yeah, I know I've sinned. Okay, I've done that. But then he took that away. He took that penalty away. And then we look and see the law. Here, here's an example. Anybody in here ever drive over the speed limit? And the rest of you, think a little longer about it. Right, most of us do. And so the idea is this. What if you had a lot of speeding tickets in your life? Because you kept driving over the speed limit. You didn't always go over the speed limit, but you did often enough. And then some of those times you get caught. And so you get these tickets. And so what you find out is that, wait a minute, somebody has paid all of those tickets and they are gone. When, when the policeman, you know, looks in the record for your, he's, oh, wow, you got a clear record. No, no, it's beating tickets because it's all been taken away. What are you going to do tomorrow? Or the next day, at least at some point, you're probably eventually going to go out and do what? Go faster than the speed limit. Okay? But what if you discover that, oh yeah, not only did they take away all of that, all of the, the tickets that you got, they actually took away the speed limit. And you can't, that's funny, huh? you can't get any tickets. You can't get any tickets anymore. Wow. Well, how am I supposed to drive then? You're supposed to drive like you love God. And God tells you, love your neighbors yourself. You should drive in a way like you're demonstrating that you love other people. You're driving, you know, it's safe for them. And we should drive like we, you know, love each other like Christ loved us. And all. But you see, this is what God has done for us in Christ. Not only has he forgiven every penalty, he's actually removed the law itself. The law is still there, still good. I mean, it's still good. You know, the, it, 
Ray, the law tells us how to love other people. Because if you love other people, you won't lie to them. Right? If you love other people, you won't take their stuff. If you love other people, if you love God, you're going to want to do what God says, how to live, right? I mean, you see what I'm saying? But this is how we're to live now. Jesus lives in us. He's changed us on the inside. He's teaching us to love, and we need to live by love. Because if you really live by love, the law is irrelevant. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? I'm not saying it's not good. It is good. It's valuable. It's important. You need to learn what God says is moral and what's immoral, what's right and what's wrong and all that. But it's about love now. It's not about keeping a list of rules anymore. You need to be so thankful that your life is not about keeping rule after rule after rule after rule. But the reality is maybe some of you are still living that way. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. And the third thing that we see here in the next verse, verse 15, talking about what he did on the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He's talking about the spiritual powers, uh, the satanic powers, demons, demonic world, all that kind of stuff that did have power over you. And so the third thing is the power of evil over us. He has uh, delivered us from. Okay? Uh, remember back in chapter 1, we saw this. Uh, it says he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Um, it's like a dark cloud. Uh, you know, one of those days, you know one of those days where you wake up and it ought to be light outside and it doesn't seem very light? You know what I'm about when the clouds are like that? It's just dark like that. Uh, and then at some point, when it's that day, all of a sudden the sun comes out and those clouds go away. That's what it's like for us, because there is a dark cloud of, of the enemy over us until we come to Jesus. And when we come to Jesus, we're no longer under those dark clouds. Now we're in him and in his light. And uh, Ephesians chapter 5 says this. It says, for you were once darkness. You yourself, you were under darkness, you were influenced by darkness, but now you are a light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. So man, he's delivered us from the penalties again. He's delivered us from the law itself, trying to have to keep that. And he has delivered us from the powers of evil. That's such good news, right? And so when we understand this, how free are we? Are you free? You know, we don't always consciously think about that, but we are free. We are free from the penalty of sin. I'm never going to have to pay the penalty for my sins. I am free from that. I am free from even having to try to keep the law. I just need to grow in my love for the Lord and grow in my love for you and learn to act on that and, and learn from the word what that means. And then, as we're talking in our class on Sunday mornings, you know, Satan has no power over us. Now, we can allow him to influence us and we can give him a role in our lives, but he can't make us do anything. He has no power over us. And so this idea of freedom, um, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You are free to go to God at any moment, at any time, any place. You are free to go to God when you've been living a great life and you are free to go to God when you've been sinning. 
You know, that's when we say, oh, I can't go to God. It's a lie. You're free. Come boldly into his presence. I need you. I need your grace. I need your grace to do well here. I need your grace because I have not done well here. Come boldly. We are so free on the things that really matter. And so this is what Paul is telling us in the book of Colossians. You remember we talked last week about that, the, the lie that was being told to the Colossians is that Jesus was good, but he wasn't enough. You needed Jesus plus something. Jesus plus. And fill in the blanks of what that might be for you. But what we saw the truth is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. When you don't add anything to Jesus and you let him be who he's supposed to be in your life, you discover that you have everything you need. As I said in the very beginning today, all things that pertain to life and godliness you have in your relationship with Jesus. Anything that you need, he can provide it for you. Whether it's something going on in your soul, or whether it's money you need in life or whatever, he has all of that. Now, what the Apostle Paul does here is, continuing his letter, he gives some warnings things that will rob us of our experience of this freedom. They can't take the freedom away, but they can govern how we experience it. So let's read on here. The first warning, verse 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. So he's talking about people who are trying to keep the law. They're trying to add the law. In addition, they're thinking, well, what holidays should we keep? And uh, what days should we not work? You know, what's the calendar for our religious life, all that kind of stuff. And then he says, verse 17, he says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Do you get that? All of those things were symbols. They were symbols of Christ and what he was going to do and what he is doing. And the problem is that sometimes people get those things mixed up. And so Paul warns us, don't confuse don't confuse symbols and reality. Don't confuse them. You say, well, we're Baptists. We don't do that. Right. We just have a different set. But we see that any legitimate religious symbol is going to point us to the reality of Christ, to the substance, the reality. You get that? One's a shadow, and that's not real. I mean, it's real, but it's not. Then there's the reality. It's the thing that the shadow is showing us. And so when the religious symbols become the reality in our minds, when we begin to think that these symbols are the substance, we've messed up. And you may come from a religious background where that has happened to you, where the symbols of Christ have, become, have taken a place in your life that they don't belong. Okay, and so Paul says, don't do that. It's, it's, there's a story in the Old Testament and that God's people had sinned against God and, and as, a, as a chastisement to help them to realize their need to repent, the Bible says he sent a fiery serpents or, or poisonous snakes. Okay, and poison, they came across these poisonous snakes. They were getting bit. And it was to tell them, wait, we've been disobeying God. And so they come to Moses and say, what are we supposed to do? We're, we're getting sick from these snakes. And he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And he, they formed a, a snake out of bronze. And they put it on a high pole in the middle of the camp. 
and, and this sounds a little strange to us, okay, but he says this, that if you get bit someplace by one of those snakes, and if you will look up in faith to that symbol, that, that snake up there, you'll be healed. God will heal you. Well, what's that about? Well, we find out what that's about. Not only was it for them at that point in time, but Jesus says in John chapter 3, right before, for God so loved the world, he says, just as this happened in the Old Testament, when Moses lifted up this serpent, he says, so I will be lifted up to address your problem of sin. And so then when we realize that we have sinned against the holy God, we can look to Jesus who was what? Raised up on a cross and crucified for us and receive his forgiveness. So it was a picture. It was a symbol. It was a symbol of those people's sin being raised on the cross. All right. Somehow, rather, in the years that followed, the, the decades and the centuries that followed, Israel began worshiping that bronze serpent. They still had it. I don't know where they kept it, but they began to worship it as though it were something special. God was the one who was special, right? The substance, what that symbolized was the Lord Jesus Christ. Not, it wasn't about that. Well, Hezekiah is the king, and he's leading a revival in his country, and he's helping them to make choices. And it says that he took that serpent and destroyed it. And he called it Nehushtan. Nehushtan. You know what the Hebrew is? That, that's a Hebrew word that means it's bronze. It's a piece of bronze. Brass, whatever. That's all it is. It's a symbol. And so we want to be very careful that we do not confuse symbols and reality. All right, let's read on. Verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. I mean, we talked about that they, Colossians were being told there were other spiritual beings in between that they need to connect with if they really wanted wisdom, if they really wanted spiritual insight. He says, no, don't do that intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and it was not spirit-led here, this is just humanity, and not holding fast, here we go, not holding fast to the head. Who's the head? Who's the head? Jesus is, that's right. Not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. And so we see here that we, he's telling us, don't hold tightly to your religious practices and traditions, but hold tightly to Christ. Hold tightly to Christ, the one who is the substance of these things. So we think about religious practices and traditions, just real quick. The Lord has given us two, uh, what we might call religious practices or religious traditions to follow. And that's one we already did today, the Lord's Supper, and the other is baptism. Baptism, when someone believes in Jesus, they get, you know, we put them under the water as a picture of their death and burial with Jesus, and then we bring them up out of the water like Jesus was raised from the dead, and we raise them up, and that's a picture of their life with God. And so we have these two symbols, but here's the danger. It, and once again, it may be largely depending on what your religious background was and your upbringing and how you view things. But if we start to think that it is actually that bread and that juice or wine that somehow rather provides us with the forgiveness, we've made a mistake. He says, hold tightly to Christ, not to the bread and the juice. You get that? 
In other words, if I don't know what the Hebrew word would be for that, we would say it's just bread. It's just juice. But we're taking it as a reminder to us of it, to remember those things that Jesus did for us. Same with baptism. It's a symbol. It's not, uh, doesn't save us or anything like this. We want to be careful about that. Finally, verse 20, down to the end. It was not finally. That's a famous preacher word, finally. So the little kid invites his friend to church. And the, the um, little kid had never been in church before, the friend. And so everything goes on. He keeps asking his friend, what's that? What are they doing? And he'd explain to him what they're doing, what that means. And find, the, uh, they got down you know, toward the end. And, and the preacher takes off his watch and sets it on the pulpit in front of him and says, finally. And the little kid said, what's that mean? He says, oh, that means nothing. <laughs> Almost finally, verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, we talked about that earlier. This is where you've you got to earn everything. Why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. And you can go on with the list. Which all concern things which perish with the using. They're just brass, they're just bread, they're just juice, they're just whatever they are, and they're going to perish. And here it is, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So, verse 20, why do you subject yourselves to the commandments and doctrines of men? And so, third thing, don't be governed by human religion. That's a warning from Paul. Don't be governed by human religion. Um, We're to be governed by the word of God and the spirit of God and the, the way our consciences work in response to those things. God has given legitimate authority to his church, to churches like ours. He has. But it's a limited authority. It's a, we have the authority to stand up and preach the word of God to you and say, this is what God says. You know, we have the authority to, uh, if need be, we all, when you come to be a part of the church, you agree that, yeah, if I mess up, I want you to come after me and tell me and try to get me back. And so the church has the authority to do that. Uh, but when it comes to ruling over your lives, the church does not have that authority. I don't think you're at great risk of experiencing it here, but once again, depending on what your religious background is, you may view church as having those kinds of authority over your whole life. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Paul says, why do you subject yourselves to that? So don't, it's a warning. It'll rob, these things rob you of your freedom in Christ, your experience of these things. And then finally, verse 23. Finally, verse 23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. They can look good. They can look very religious. You know, we could, I could start wearing uh, very ornate robes. And if, if I walk in with a ornate robe next week, you'd go, what's happened to wall? But, I could, right? And we could begin to gild things with gold. and, and fa- I mean, once again, all those things aren't wrong. It's just if you think they are what's right, you've messed up. Okay? So it says, they have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion. False humility, okay, we talked about that last week. Neglect of the body, this don't eat, you know, control yourself. But here's what he says. But all of these things are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. 
So there is no religious practice, no physical activity you can do, no physical object you can do that is ever going to make a difference in who you really are. Or enable you to be free from the penalty of sin or the controlling power of sin, right? It's, it's not, it doesn't work. And so here's the thought. No matter how you feel about it, because religion comes with lots of feelings, no matter how you feel about it, when it comes to what Jesus has already done for you, there's nothing you can do to make it any better, any more sufficient, any more secure, any more sure, any more whatever, any more effective. There's nothing you can do. It's Him and what He has done. And we believe it and step out in faith and act on it. And so it makes sense then, if this being true, that the bottom line for freedom in Christ is to give Jesus the preeminence in your life. Doesn't it make sense, logically? I know we got our lives and our experience and we're, we're all the time trying to work to bring that in conformity to what we know is true, but this is the truth. This is the bottom line for experiencing the freedom that Christ has for you. He needs to have the preeminence. And so we're thinking, what does it really mean to be free in Christ then? Well, here's the deal. We experience freedom in Christ when Christ is first in our lives. Go ahead and go to that if you would, Eduardo. We experience this freedom in Christ when Christ comes first. Now, Depending on where you're at in your life, there may be a big struggle in you right now of thinking, okay, I get that, but the, what does that mean? I gotta let go of this, I gotta take, let, yeah, you have to let go of control of your life. You have to give up control of your life. And that doesn't mean you don't make decisions, you do, but you're trying to make decisions that the Lord wants you to do, and from his word and, and wisdom. It's no longer your life just to do with as you please. You're saying, no, no, my life is yours, Lord, to do with as you please. And I gotta let go of all of it. And so we need to do that. And you need to do that in your relationships. You need to do that in your work. You need to do that in your religious stuff. You need to do that in whatever. Ask the Lord to show you what you need to do it in. And you need to say once and for all, a once and for all decision, God, I am yours. Lord Jesus, I want you to be preeminent in my life. I want you to be first in everything. And God, I am so messed up. I don't even know where to start. But I'm making a decision. That's, that's what I want. That's what I'm saying. And then, Lord, help me. And then day in and day out, you begin to grow. You start to see where he is and you wrestle with it and then you finally surrender to God. By the way, you cannot experience the freedom that Christ has for you if you say, okay, all of these areas, yes, but you know, I'm, I'm taking care of this one. I got this one under control, Lord. Won't work. You got to give it all. Can I encourage you to do that today? Give it all to the Lord, once and for all. Father, we come to you and thank you for your word and this challenge. We thank you that Jesus is everything that we need, all that comes with him, your spirit, your word, your wisdom your empowerment to do, all those things, Lord. We, it only makes sense for us to let him be preeminent in our lives. And so I pray, Lord, for every one of us here today that if we haven't already surrendered to you in this, that we would surrender to you once and for all and say, okay, I get it. 
I want Jesus to be preeminent in my life. I make him first. And then, Lord, help us, because you know us. You know all about us. You know how desperately we need you to work in our lives to make that become a reality more and more and more, for you are worthy of it. And we so desperately need it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.